we can be seated. This is God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder for another week, Scripture and Scripture alone, would you, would you melt our hearts upon the anvil of your Word? Shape us, form us, equip us to know your Word to know the surety of it. Lord, in your word, you have spoken. So, Lord, give us the grace to walk in step with your will. For your glory, in this evil age you've put us. Help us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today's message, again, is entitled Scripture Alone, or it's actually Reformation Matters, Scripture Alone, but we're going to be looking at the, the, the phrase we looked at last time, which was sola scriptura, which is Latin for Scripture Alone. Um, this is the second week we're spending on it. I, this is what we saw last week, just very simply, and it will be the theme of the Reformation Matters series we're doing, which is simply, according to Scripture Alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, so that's what we saw last week. And we, we looked at several elements um, last week uh, about Scripture. And we, we reviewed, we talked about reason above Scripture, how, how often in our present evil age we have people who have reason above Scripture or even in the Reformation time, what you had was Scripture equated with tr- tradition. Or we had bare Scripture, naked Scripture, and how that was wrong. But what we have and what we cling to is Scripture alone. Are those slides back there, Ed? I'm sorry. Are they working? I'm sorry. It might not be working well for you. But I, I wanted to return to it this week. Um, there we go. So let's roll back through them real quick. Um, so the first, what we, what we saw was reason over Scripture. This is where the majority of our culture lives. They want to stand above Scripture and judge Scripture. And then secondly, what we saw was Scripture and tradition. What we had was, and this was the Roman Catholic Church view, kind of, that the Pope is authoritative just as Scripture is. But then we get into this very kind of postmodern, post-truth view of bare, naked Scripture where we just all take our Bibles and go and and just interpret however we see the Spirit lead. And where it leads us is all sorts of wonky places. But then finally, what I would argue is what we have is Scripture alone, which is our interpretation based upon the teachings of the past. But Scripture stands over tradition. It shapes tradition. It shapes our understanding. But what, according to Scripture, when we say according to Scripture, I never really laid out what does that mean? 
What does according to Scripture actually mean? And this is what I want to argue for today, is that according to Scripture alone means we understand Scripture as the authoritatively, sufficiently necessary communication of God for our transformation into the image of Christ. Now, I'm going to unpack that phrase. You don't need to… That, that's just the summarization of this message. But why is this so important? Let me give you one reason. I heard this put well about the gospel before, but I think it's true about Scripture. The first generation discovers the Scriptures. The second generation assumes the Scriptures. And the third generation loses the Scriptures. Do you know why? And I'm fearful even in our own day. The first generation has discovered the Scriptures, and we sit and we stand under the Scriptures correctly. The second generation then assumes it. Oh yeah, of course, this is the Word of God. What does the third generation do? They lose the gospel. They lose the Scripture alone, okay? So that's why I wanted to come back to it again this week. But I want to, there's a guy, there's a picture of a guy on the screen. And you probably, maybe I'll, I'll just ask you, does anyone know who this guy is? In, in, within, within church tradition. Anybody? I didn't, I didn't know who he was. But this, actually, and I wanted to give you a picture of him. He is kind of like a strange looking man, isn't he? I don't know if he actually looked like this, but he, I, I'll just say that he did, okay? But his name is actually Johann Tetzel. And if you're not familiar with Johann Tetzel, this is actually not like a, uh, he was not one of the reformers. He was actually a man who was the chief salesman of his day, Okay? And what was he the chief salesman of, you ask? Indulgences. This guy would go around, and I just want to give you a picture of him. This guy would go around and sell something called indulgences, okay? And an indulgence was simply a payment that would be made to Rome to basically shorten a person's time in purgatory, okay? Now, purgatory was an invention of the Roman Catholic Church, which was basically a holding cell for heaven. So rather than going straight to heaven... What we had was this holding cell where we would be purged. So I'm not really holy, you know, so rather when I die, I don't go to heaven. What I go to is purgatory, where I would be cleansed with fire. And so this guy, you ask why, why, why are you showing me this picture of Johann Tetzel? I, I show Johann Tetzel because Tetzel was a salesman who would go around and would basically say this. Listen to what he would say. So everybody, when you had a relative that would pass away... You would, you would, they would tell you, well, they're in purgatory now. They're being cleansed with fire. But if you give some money to the Pope, he will, he will pull something from the treasury of merit and get them out of purgatory. Listen to what he would go and tell them. This is Tetzel. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us with pittance, or which would be money, basically. Will you let us lie here in flames? Can you hear him? Will you delay our promised glory? And then Tetzel came up with this phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer, which would be the little container, rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So when your grandma would die, basically, he would come along and say, give some money to Roman, Rome, and then your grandma will leave purgatory. If you ever wondered why Roman Catholic churches are so big, they were built upon the backs of people, people who did not have money to, to pay, okay? 
So then you have guys like Luther that come along and talk to Tetzel, and they say, they say things like this. I think it's very helpful. Like an insidious devil, you pervert the scriptures. Do you know why he said that? And Luther, I love Luther. Luther was like talking to a guy that walked along with a hammer and hit you with it. And I think it was helpful in some ways because guys like Tetzel would come into town. Here would be poor Miss Mary down the road who just lost her husband, had no money to give. But then the Roman Catholic Church would, upon the backs of poor people, would build and build and build. And you know where it was based upon? Not Scripture. I can guarantee you that. And so, and I, I give this as an example to say, when we say Scripture alone, we have a deep tradition that goes back and fights against and pushes against oppression and tyranny for many, many generations. Men like Tetzel that use and abuse and harm people for their own gain. So just know, when I, when I come back to this on Scripture alone, we have a deep tradition here, friends, and I, w- I hope you know that. So I want you to see first off that Scripture is breathed out by God. This is where we were at last time, and I should have just slowed down, and I didn't. So I want us to spend some more time on it this week. Breathed out by God, what is Scripture? Was, was Luther right when he said, you insidious devil, you pervert the Scriptures? I would say yes, he was right. And here's why. They were rejecting the authority, the, the sufficiency, the necessity of Scripture. So when we say God breathed, what do we mean? Well, I would argue we mean three things. We could, we could put more, but I want to give you three things. That God breathed reveals the necessity of Scripture. I thought Jeremy Pierre's comments on this were very helpful. He was a professor of mine that I think is very, very helpful in this way. He says, why do we need Scripture to know God instead of just relying on other sources of knowledge? And he goes on and says, Scripture is required to know God as He intends to be known, since He testifies about Himself beyond what is revealed in Scripture. The fleshly man comes to the Bible and comes to God and says, I think I can know God on my terms. And that is the utter arrogance of sin. And that is the generation we live in. That people think, I can approach God however I jolly well please. And we never stop to ask the question, is this how he wants to be approached? Is this how he's able to be approached? And so I want us to see that light, so so when we say God breathe reveals the necessity of Scripture, what I want us to see is two real elements within the necessity of Scripture. The first is light necessary for darkness. The assumption with the necessity of Scripture is that me and you and all of us, apart from Holy Scripture, dwell in darkness. Remember back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. All they had ever heard was God's perfect word spoken to them. All they had ever heard was God speaking truth over them. He declared who humanity was. He spoke them into existence. He told them of their relationship. And what was the first thing Satan came to them in the garden with? Did God really say? Now the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made, said to the woman, Did God God actually say? Did, Did he actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The first thing that was attacked in the garden was the Word of God. 
And brothers and sisters, we live in a generation that attacks and mutilates and tries to mar and maim the Word of God. They rejected God's Word in the garden. They displaced God's Word in the garden to live, to believe another word about themselves. And what this shows us is that all of us, me and you included, dwell in darkness apart from the Word of God. Humanity doesn't begin in the light. We all begin in darkness. If you need another place to see it, here's two other places. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Or listen to Paul in another place, Romans 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Scripture is first coming to the darkness, okay? It's light coming to the darkness. So I used this example last time of a little house. I think it should be at this point, Ed. There it is, yes. This is, this is the world without Scripture. And I just want you to think about and ponder upon. I, I hope if you ever get a chance, there's a, there's a museum exhibit at the Museum of the Bible called How Many Languages Have Yet to be Translated in Scripture? And if you walk in that room, like, I don't know, maybe like a quarter, maybe three quarters... 30% of the room, is p- languages that have Bibles in their own tongue. And then the rest of it, three-quarters of it, are people that it's either in translation or not even yet to be started. And this is where they dwell. I hope you feel the weight of that. I hope you walk into that room and feel the weight of not only the grace that's been shown to you to have a Bible in your language, but not only that, would it compel us to take the gospel to those who don't have. And so, so that's the first thing. Light necessary for darkness. The second thing is no additions necessary. Now you may wonder, why, like, why are you even bringing this one up? This one seems very simple. I shouldn't add to God's word. Well, it's very important because I think, like I said, we're quick to forget these things, aren't we? This means that we do not add to God's Word. We do not place our words on the same plane as Scripture. Even the best words we don't place on the same plane. Listen to what Paul says again, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Now, what are those ways? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The underhanded, disgraceful ways are the people who tamper with God's Word. And you say, well, Daniel, we don't, we don't do this nowadays. <laughs> oh, contraire, we do. We do in many ways. I'm not sure if you're familiar. If there's a new translation, I think, and I'm forgetting the, the postmark of when it came out, but it's called the Passion Translation. Anybody familiar with that? I hope that's actually really good that I get a lot of like, what are you talking about? The Passion Translation. Go look up the Passion Translation. Do it. Because these are the kind of translations that people are starting to use that are so marred, that are so not according to Scripture at all. You would read it and think, what? What? 
So we do this all the time. I, I want to just caution you, even the translation that you use, it doesn't need to be ESV, it doesn't need to be NKJV, but be careful of the, script, the translation you use, because this is very much no additions necessary. People tr- are always trying to add to the Word of God. But there's an underlying assumption as well with this. Not only is there no additions necessary, there's an underlying assumption that says every word should be heeded. Every word, not only should no no words be added to it, but every word that's in it, we should pay careful attention to. This is why one one of the Reformation cries was sola reformendum, always reforming. We are always reforming. No matter how, how long we've known the truth, we're always reforming. We're always changing according to God's word. So that's the first one. God breathed reveals the necessity of Scripture. Secondly, God breathed reveals the sufficiency of Scripture. And we see all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Again, Dr. Pierre, very helpful here. He says, as the special revelation of God, Scripture contains all the words of God. We need to know Him by faith and to function by faith in a world He has made. Sufficiency relates by excluding, meaning that sufficiency says this is what it is and everything else should, should be bowing to this or under submission to the Word of God. And he goes on and says sufficiency is an absolute category and an on-off switch, if you will. Something is either sufficient or it's not. There is no grad- gradation of sufficiency. It excludes, he goes on to say, excludes everything from the status of ultimate authority. It is a hard yes or a hard no about the scope of ultimate authority of all their claims of ultimate authority. And here's the two ways I would argue that sufficiency, sufficiency is sufficient. So it's sufficient in truth. And I know this is, these, some of these seem simple, but they really are very important. Is it true or is it false? There is no in-between. Scripture is either wholly true or wholly not. Many people have tried to get around this by accepting portions of Scripture while rejecting others, but this is a rejection of Scripture as a whole. I mentioned last week about the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He rejected sufficiency in truth. You know how he did so? He'd go through his Bible and he would cut out certain portions he didn't like. We laugh, we chuckle, and it is chuckle. Like, go see it sometime if you're at the Museum of the Bible. It's there. But this is what he was rejecting. He was rejecting that it's sufficient in truth. Here's the other one we we reject. It's sufficiently clear. Is the Bible clear or is the Bible not clear? There's not an in-between in this one. You know how I see this one, too? This one is so... I think of all the ones in talking with people on campuses, when you start working with them and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And then they start to say, but the Bible's just so confusing. It's so confusing. And you talk to them long enough and you're sitting there, and I I get that. I want to say there are parts of Scripture that are hard to understand. You, You need to understand the context. You need to understand many pieces about it. But I will say, what they mean by that, though, is that it's not really worth my time to look into I'm willing to go online and learn how to do cross-stitch for 100 hours, but I'm not willing to look at Scripture for more than five minutes. If I have to look at it for more than five minutes, then I don't understand it. That's what they mean. And they reject that it's sufficiently clear. 
Dr. Pierre again, very helpfully, are, are other sources of knowledge necessary to make Scripture understandable to ever, everyone. He says, do we need a key code to bring clarity to the Bible? And he says, Scripture's essential message is clear enough for anyone seeking to understand it. I sit around often and will read portions of Jesus' words to my son, my two-year-old, three-year-old son. And my three-year-old son can understand Holy Scripture. That's not because he's a genius. That's because he's seeing it, he's hearing it, it's understandable. It's clear. It's sufficiently clear. Now, there's areas that obviously are harder to understand. We don't just pick up the book of Leviticus and start reading the book of Leviticus. If you can do that, you're more than welcome to do that. It may be a little more complicated, and that's okay. But the majority of Scripture, Scripture as a whole, is sufficiently clear. Here's the other one, and I would argue this is the one I really wanted to drive home for us, because this is the one that really challenges us. God breathed reveals the authority of Scripture. God breathed reveals the authority of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed, 2 Timothy three sixteen again, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith here. Very helpful. Again, this is how tr- tradition can be very helpful for us. The authority of the Holy Scripture dependeth not upon the testimony of man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself. The author thereof and therefore is to be received because it is the Word of God. Or as Dr. Pierre goes on to say, as the special revelation of God, Scripture is supremely true in the knowledge and values it expresses, thus acting as the standard of all other knowledge and value. Let me give you a very simple way that this starts to happen. So you're reading maybe a textbook, okay, on science. Okay, I was a science major. I was a STEM major. I never, I never got in these discussions a lot because I was dealing with hard math, okay, but maybe you're reading a science book that talks about the age of the earth. And so you're reading the textbook, and it's talking about the organism, the, the heart on an octopus or something. I don't know. You're reading it, and it's talking about it, and it says, yes, and through evolutionary processes... Oh, hold on. Do you see that quickly? You're reading along. Okay, this is, look at how amazing this heart valve is on the octopus. And wait a minute. Through evolutionary processes, what do we do as Christians in that moment? Do we say, yep, yeah, well, okay, that must be what it is, and that's how, we, that's how we got here. We all evolved from apes. No. What we do in that moment is we apply the authority of Scripture. So we see the true thing that the book is trying to tell us, but we reject, what do we reject? The evolutionary process, that quickly. Listen to another place in Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the, more, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture come, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love, again, Pierre, he comes in and he says, authority relates by arbitrating. 
Authority is a category of degree, a dimmer switch. A dimmer switch has degrees and values. Something can have relative authority in reference to a greater authority. And what we're saying with Scripture, very simply, is not only is it sufficient, but we're saying the authority is all the way turned up. And when you do that, when you have a light switch like that that has two switches on it that work in tandem, what happens if you keep sufficiency on and turn authority all the way down is the light goes off. And I would argue that is, that is how the majority of people who claim to be Christians live, unfortunately. They live with the sufficiency. Oh, yeah, of course. The Bible's sufficiently true. It's sufficiently clear. How authoritative is it? Well, you know, I've got other sources. So it's authority, authoritative in two ways. Here's the two ways. Its, authorita- its authority is in content. So that means whatever the Scripture says is true. That whatever it says is what it is. So if the Bible says, God made man, when you're reading a science book and it says, man came from apes, what do we do with that? Do we say, oh, well, I guess we have to reshape the Bible? No, no, no. What do we say? That is wrong in content. It's wrong in content. But it's also, and here's the other way I would say this is, this is, very, this is very significant, its authority is in priority. So it's not just simply in content. It's not just in what it's saying but it's also in how it says it. Have you ever noticed, and and pay attention to this at some point when you read the epistles, I think it's interesting that after the, that Paul gives these amazing gospel truths to the church, that he immediately gives a household code. That he says, you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You've been known before the foundations of the world. You know what he tells us? Go love your wives. Go, go submit to your husbands. Go honor your neighbor. Priority, the priority of that knowledge, the relative degree of importance is what we give to a certain idea. Again, Pierre. Every source of knowledge is only authoritative only to the degree that its content and prioritization conforms with the perspective revealed in Scripture. This means we read every other thing with a filter of the Bible. Now, that is an offensive statement. I want to say that one more time. Everything we read, everything we see on TV, everything we interact with in the culture, we filter through Scripture. Again, Pierre, he asked the question, how does the testimony about God, who God is and His purpose for human life arbitrate the knowledge we gain from other sources He goes on and says, as ultimate authority, Scripture is the standard that measures all other sources of knowledge, both in content and priority of knowledge. The authority of other sources of knowledge are derived. Hear that word. They are derived from the adherence to this standard. In content means we see what Scripture says, and then we see what they say, and we agree with Scripture but also in priority. And so if everybody around us is saying, well, the family, it doesn't really matter. Let's just destroy the family. The family is a gospel issue. The family, the church, marriage is a gospel issue. It is not of secondary importance. Okay, that's that's the authority piece. Authority in content and authority in priority. 
Let me give you the, the second one. It's profitable for transformation. What does Scripture do? Now, we, we saw this last time. I kind of did a flyover of it, but I want to come back to it. When we say profitable for, what we need to have in mind is we need to have the purposes that God has in redemption in mind. The transformation of those who are in Christ to be conformed to the image of His Son. Colossians 1.15 says this, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The thing is, is that mankind, me and you, are made in the image of God. Jesus Christ himself is the image. It brings God great glory when he takes the base things of this world, me and you, and he transforms them into the most beloved. He transforms them into the image of his most beloved son. It brings God great glory to take, to take rebels and sinners and make them like his beloved. Romans 8, 29. This is at the center of God's plan for the world. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The transformation that God has planned is for me and you. It's for sinners. And so we saw last week transformation in teaching and in rebuking and correcting and building. Notice again in verse 17 or verse 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's easy for us. We, We say that and we're like, of course, of course. Or listen to Colossians 1, 27 to 28. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But here's the piece I didn't mention it at all. And this was very, very important. It's very pivotal. We cannot just be God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible, okay? When we talk about Scripture and the transformation that comes through it, we need to understand the Spirit's role in this. It's transformation through the Spirit. We can read the Bible all we want, and God's purpose is always, as we've, we're going to see here in just a second, His purposes never fail. When you read the Bible, I can confidently say this, and I'll show you here in just a second, you are either being softened to the Spirit of God or being hardened to the Spirit of God. And both are accomplishing His purposes. I'll say that one more time. When you're being softened to the Word of God or being hardened to the Word of God, both accomplish His purposes. Without the Spirit of God working in us, we read the words on a page and our hearts are hardened. Without the Spirit of God working in us, they are hardened like stone. Here, what John Frame, I think, very helpfully says, the power of the Word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear in faith with a disposition to obey. But it hardens those who hear it with indifference, resistance, 
or rebellion. Did you hear that one more time? The power of the word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear it with faith. But to others, it hardens those who hear it with indifference, resistance, and rebellion. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, we, we, you hear this quoted often. Notice, though, what he says. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Do you see that? So when we hear the word of God, it's always accomplishing its purpose. God is always accomplishing his purpose through it. Again, listen to frame. That implies that the word is never without the power of the spirit, but sometimes that power affects a blessing and sometimes a curse, depending on God's sovereign intent. This is why for me and you, when we come to God's word and we hear things promised to us, for those who love God all things work together for good. We can be confident that when we read God's word and you walk away and you think, man, I'm a sinner, I'm a rebel, praise God, he's softening your heart. And here's the problem that we live in. We, we know this. Soft teaching creates hard hearts. And hard teaching creates soft hearts. You know why? Because God's sovereign purpose in His Word being applied to us is softening us. Praise God. Without the Spirit of God applying the Word of God to us, we have no hope. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. I think this is really helpful. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you. How do we know it? How, do you, how does He know that God has chosen them? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, there it is, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with what? Full conviction. That's how we know. You want to know? You want to know how you're chosen by God? Read the word of God and see what the word of God does to you. Does it soften your heart or does it harden your heart? Paul could say he knew that the gospel came to them when the word of God came with power and with full conviction. The Bible is profitable for transformation. And you know what's amazing about this? None of it depends on me. Absolutely none of it depends on me. Actually, it does at some level because if I'm not communicating clearly or not communicating rightly, then it is on me. But inasmuch, looking through the flawed, sinful man that stands before you, see God's word and be softened to it. So profitable for teaching or for transformation. What does Scripture do? It, it's profitable for transformation. Thirdly and lastly, I want you to see that we are formed for the new creation. What does Scripture create? This is very important. We have this in our brains. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness for this purpose, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, each of us, by nature, have rejected the Word of God. 
This is why one of the biggest miracles that happens in us from week to week is that when we read God's word, we don't hate God more. Have you ever thought that? It's in these everyday realities that we see a literal miracle happening. That literal sinners and rebels, people who once hated God, now can hear God's word and love him and see in it, I love you, not by my own ability, but by God's sovereign intent in us. When the Father sends His image of the Son, He reveals the purposes and plans set for us. He then recreates us in the image of His Son through His Word. I want you to hear again what we heard read this morning from Norman. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways like we just saw. Go down, though, just a little ways. Verse, verse 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And next week when we're going to start looking at grace alone and faith alone, we need to see that all this originates from the Word of God alone. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Scripture creates a complete person. And I want to end or land, land with these two things. Scripture creates a complete person. And I said it last week, but I'll say it again. Our understanding of what a complete person is, is is very important. If we understand a complete person by someone, like I said last week, someone who goes to school, becomes a young professional, then failure has nothing to do with the Bible. Or let me give you a very modern example with, in the mental health community. There's this whole standard within the mental health community called the DSM-5. Okay, so I, I know I'm walking on probably very shallow ice here as I say this, but within the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, which there are many good things. I want to be very clear. There are many good things in the DSM-5. Many, 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 many good things. But you know what the DSM-5 never tells you? It tells you this is abnormal, this is abnormal, this is abnormal, this is abnormal. If I have depression for this long, that's abnormal. This is abnormal. If I'm fearful, that's abnormal. You know what it never tells you? What normal is. It tells you all about the abnormalities, but it never gives you the complete person. It never gives you exactly what people are supposed to be. And it's only by coming to God's word that we understand what a complete person is. It's only by coming to God's word do we see that sometimes discouragement is actually really good. Sometimes fear is actually the right response. Sometimes the things that it says that's abnormal is actually very normal and ought to be this way. Scripture creates the complete person. Secondly, I want you to see, Scripture equips us, equips you to do the master's work, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
I want you to notice just one, one more parable, and then we'll close up from here. Jesus told a parable in Luke 6 that captures what Paul talks about here in training very well. Listen to what he says. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple, listen to this, is not above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? You know, we never, we never, we always, we always quote this one, verse, uh, maybe verse 40, I think, but we never quote verse 39. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. You know, there's only two options. When we see, when we see someone walking in sin, there's only really two options. The first is we can come to them and act like we've never struggled with this. We have, we have no clue what it's like to struggle at all. Or the second is to be afraid of addressing them so, that we know, so they know we still struggle. The first is judgmentalism, and the second is hypocrisy. And neither of them are in step with the teacher. Neither of them are like the teacher who is Jesus. The path of faithfulness, according to the Lord Jesus, is to pull the log out of our own eye and then address the speck that's in our brother's eye. When we do so, we will be tender toward them, knowing that we have struggled, but we will be gracious, knowing that we, they will be also forgiven like we have. The most freeing part here, though, is that we don't change people. What we do is we bring God's Word to them, and He does it in them. We bring them the Scriptures and allow the Spirit of God to change them. The goal that Paul sets forth for us here in 2 Timothy is for we're formed for the new creation. I want to come back to this, and I want to end here. Adam and Eve in the garden were always meant to live according to God's Word. When they fell from that, what you have is a whole history, your whole Bible is moving toward this crescendo of God creating the new creation. And what we have in front of us in God's Word is the tool and the instrument. If the Holy Spirit is like the master architect, then what you have in front of you is like the chisel that He's making you into the new creation. If, if, if God Himself is the chisel that looks at you who's very broken and says, I'm making you a masterpiece, who, who does He do it through? He's the architect, not you, not me. He's the architect. And He picks up His chisel of His Word and He knocks off the hard edges. Praise God that He does this. According to Scripture alone means we understand Scripture is the authoritatively sufficient sufficiently necessary communication of God for our transformation into the image of Christ. Guys, we know where we're going. We're going to look like Christ someday. What an amazing picture of where we are someday. So we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, I'm struck by the quote oftentimes uh, by a guy named... um, when I wish I had it on the forefront of my mind. It's there and now it's gone. Oh, um, hymn writer for the amazing, amazing Grace. John Newton, thank you. John Newton once said, I think very helpfully, he says, I'm not 
what I once was. I'm not what I ought to be. But praise God, I'm, I am what I am. So hear that again. I'm, I'm, praise God, I'm not like I once was. Sinner, rebel, hating God, hating one another. That's what we once were. He says, I'm not what I should be. I'm not perfect. When I look at Christ, I still see there's areas I still struggle. But notice what he says, this last piece. But praise God, I am what I am. And praise God that he's continuing to shape us and form us by his word. So if the deacons could come forward and we'll, we'll pass the elements. Norm, Norm Jared.